John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 136.ps1704, certificate number 42973. The Blue Men of the Sahara. <laughs> I take it from the cupcake tins full of color-coded guitar picks sitting in front of me here in the bunker today mm-hmm. that you are still in the process of moving house. I am, although that is a product of the fact that my <clears throat> my young daughter is starting to exhibit the first signs uh, that she is like o- OCD. Also, my psychological descendant. Congratulations! Yeah, she came in and and felt that my guitar picks were not arranged properly, hadn't been sorted by color, and had not been counted. And so she found a bunch of cupcake papers. I don't know what these are called. Little cupcake papers. And uh, put them all on a tray and then enforced this upon me, sat me down on the floor and made me help her count and sort picks by color and shape and size. Well, it is convenient. Like the next time you're at a show and you like need your roadie to go get you an orange guitar pick for the next song because it's just that kind of a song yeah like it's going to be much easier for for scoot or uh or uh-huh. um, skip uh-huh. i don't know the name of your guitar raven <laughs> and some of these are not categorized like there's a red white and blue one here she couldn't figure out where to put like this kind of i don't know what's going on here kind of a marbled randy bachman yeah <laughs> marbled uh, patriotic flag although she was pretty definitive about picking where things went I mean, there are some there. You're holding one that I made out of an old Visa. This one's Visa. actually cut from a Visa card. I can yeah. see part of the number. Is this secure? It is. It okay. is. That card is now long deactivated. Is, this, is this as good as a real pick? Or the, for, is for the, a while is the guitar pick industry a sham? Should I, we all just be cutting up our, our uh, Albertsons cards? You know, Billy Gibbons uses like old Mexican pesos. Everybody's got their own thing, you know? And for a while I thought maybe... I would, I would the make, credit picks, card guy. make picks out of credit cards, but then... You're like the woman that showed up at the Oscars in the uh, Amex gold dress or whatever. You know, there is a, 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 it's a wonderful subset of like rock and roll, rock and roll clothes. Uh, some designer made a, made kind of a, a little black dress out of guitar picks, black guitar oh, picks. Oh, wow. Just sort of fastened them all to each other, made, cut little holes in them and made little um, stitches. 
and it's uh, you know it's it's very sleek, very slinky, but I can't imagine very comfortable. And also, I mean, you can only wear it once, right? You can't be like, <laughs> I'm here again in my guitar uh, pick dress guitar. again. It's Bjork showing up again in the swan dress. Yeah, we get it, Bjork. You look like a dead swan. I mean, unless you're like dedicated groupie and you're just going to, I mean, because night after night, a different band comes through town. You could show up backstage at their show in your guitar pick dress and- and that band would be none the wiser. Or, or Sixpence None the Richer, perhaps. There you go. You don't know who the band is. Six, sixpence None the Richer. Do they use Sixpences, Sixpence pieces to, uh, to strum their guitars? No, you know, they're, a, Kroner. they're a Christian rock band. They and, are. Yeah, and so they, they... The name is a reference to some C.S. Lewis quote about how um, uh, Jesus is a lion, and if you, um, I don't know, have sex in high school, it's you're none the richer? I, yeah. I, I don't remember. Yeah, some something like that. Something just as garbled as what you said. But uh, but their onstage outfits are like puffy sleeved dresses. You know, it's like a colonial or a, like a <laughs> like a prairie reenactment. They're, they're all group. wearing the Handmaid's Tale outfit. Yeah. It's super weird. Even the men. Yeah. It's super weird. I posted a nice thing about the Sundays uh, mm-hmm. on the internet and uh, got a lot of people writing me back about how influential the Sundays were on them in the late '80s. And then it started. It precipitated an entire side train of thought about Sixpence None the Richer and whether or not they were canonical in the Sundays family or or if they were like a like a Sundays ripoff band that had besmirched the legacy of Jangle Pop. By accepting Jesus as their savior? <clears throat> I'm not 100% sure. That, you know, that was during an era when there was still a lot of suspicion about Jesus in rock and roll. The, I remember people um, being suspicious about you too. Right. Oh, like, very suspicious. They're the biggest band in the world, but are they secretly singing about, is, yeah. is one love like God's love? Yeah, they were trying to inflict their Catholicism on everybody. There's, this is uh, pretty far removed from the nominal subject of our show, which I'm sure we'll be getting to in, in an hour oh, or so. Oh, one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know the 33 and a third series of books, each one a, a slim paperback about a different record? I've been meaning to write one for years. You they, should they, absolutely they write wrote, They wrote me and asked me if I would write one. Do you have a, an album picked up? <clears throat> yeah, I was going to do ZZ Top's Eliminator. I believe no one has done as easy no top one record has, yet. No one has. I know. And for they fact. hardly ever double up on artists, so you're you're still golden. Yeah, a lot of my friends have written them, and I have quite a few of them around here. Somewhere. Sure, we know. Um, like the the Sean, Sean Nelson one Sean on Nelson on Joni one. Mitchell's Court and Spark is fantastic. Right, Colin Malloy did one, I think, and he Joe did, Pernice did one. Joe Pernice's Colin Malloy's is Let It Be. I think the the um, replacements one, not the Beatles right, one. Right, they're both in the collection. Oh, I can't remember what the Joe Pernice one is. It's Joe did. Uh, Meat is murder, but it's not. It's actually not like a review of the uh, of the album. It's a short story. Joe's kind of a poet and a novelist. He has the most soothing voice in rock to me. Like I like I. Just, I hope that's not a a, a diss because I just love his his uh, the the kind of languorous quality. I could just nod off. It's like a drug to me listening to any Pernice Brothers song. The Pernice Brothers and Joe as a songwriter are perfect example of a completely underappreciated artist in their own time. And I mean, that his music just lulls me and captivates me and always has, but he never, you know, ascended to the, to the big time, probably like so because, many of us. Probably because he didn't use Christian imagery. Well, also like when you hear Joe's music, you think like, oh, this is, I mean, I can't wait to, to experience like the pop splendor of this band but they presented themselves as a very working class Massachusetts, like um, a journeyman mm. band. And so when you went to see them, there was no flash. It was absolutely like, 
you know, we kind of like took our tool belts off and picked up our guitars. Like the people are listening to the records. I think they're going to go see Bell and Sebastian. Right. And instead, it's all denim. Well, it just, it, I mean, it basically looked like the looked like the cast of this old house. They were sitting on the edge of a girder high above the city with lunch pails, <laughs> singing, <laughs> singing, singing their these songs. songs. And so it just didn't have, it, like, and that, that was intentional on their part. In, in part of the spirit of the time, right? That was an era where you weren't supposed to project very much glamour if you were an authentic artist. Sure, uh, but Guided they, by Voices era. Right, but they truly didn't. And at least Guided by Voices had, a, you know, had the drunkenness <laughs> that made it seem like even, even but, though... But you can't drink that many beers on a girder. You can't bring, you can't bring a cooler <laughs> no, up there on dangerous. the girder. It's super dangerous. You know, Guided by Voices has like a high school teacher in, as their front man, but a high school teacher that's going through a really bad divorce. <laughs> <laughs> He's got eight Coronas in him and it's like second period. <laughs> How did we get on this? Oh, because uh, we're talking about the blue men of the Sahara and it's a, log as, a logical as, extension. So how do you get between that and sixpence and the rich? Oh, the guitar pick dresses, I guess. The you started talking about guitar picks. Right. Because, I mean, it's impossible to not. They're right They're in front right of me. They're sitting right in front of me. Bunker. So let's just say this episode is no longer about the nomadic people of the Sahara. No, but it's about guitar picks. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I, I would say probably 20% of those guitar picks, if you picked one up and held it, uh, held it up, I would have a story about it. Uh, will it bring joy? Is this like the Japanese life, uh, life coach? Hopefully. You can't tell. Can you tell, <clears throat> can you tell this scalloped yellow one apart from this yellow one that with the fender look? Yes, I can. The scalloped yellow one I picked up after a pop will eat itself concert. <laughs> I picked it up off the stage and I, I have spent years trying to figure out exactly what all of those like it's, scallops. It's got three and, different edges, like some kind of ninja weapon. It's an example of that build a better mousetrap problem where a guitar pick is such a simple little heart-shaped thing. There's always somebody that's going to say they can do a better job. Well, with all these, um, with all these little plastic heart-shaped things, you could have a different dress for every day of the week. Like you could dress Marlo in orange guitar picks one day, green the next. You've got a whole lot of options. Yeah. I'm not going to dress her like that because that, I don't want her to. Your, your goal is not rock and roll groupie. I don't want her to be a rock and roll groupie. And I have already forbade her from ever dating a skater. <laughs> and I know that that's just, I'm sealing my fate. Her little boyfriend right now, a little boy that she went to preschool with, who she keeps, they keep saying that they're going to get married. He's already a skater. You can just, you, I could tell when he was two years old, he was a skater. I said to his mom, wait a minute, you're, he's a skater. And she was like, don't say that. I know. He's got the skater gene. He we did. had him tested. He had floppy hair. And in the future, we're talking to people who will know in utero if yeah. they have skater kids yeah. because they'll be able to do the test. You'll be able to see, right? You can, you can do the thrashiocentesis or whatever. But he was one of these kids that anytime there was like a stair that was more than two stairs high, he would like jump off of it and like ollie, even just with no board. He'd never been on a board. You could tell he He'd was a skater. He'd never even seen a skateboard, but I could tell he was a skater. And now that he's seven years old, yep. I saw a video of him dropping in for the first time into a bowl and I was like, damn it. The reason I brought up the, the evidence that you're moving house is because you've been, you've been in this house for quite a while, right? I've lived here for here? 11 years. Yeah. Do you get tied to places? I mean, I, I, I get the impression you get tied to things and souvenirs based on your pop will eat itself. Your amazing chronological memory of your guitar picks. <laughs> you're, you're kind of rain man. <laughs> <laughs> I am tied to objects because I, I have a kind of animist um, mm. internal life where uh, objects are imbued with spirit. And that wasn't taught to me. I, none of my family practices this. My dad practiced a kind of Shinto ancestor worship. Of his literal ancestors? Yeah, he would. Just he, he would just start knowing stories about them? No, and... he would refer to them. He would, 
I mean, not like openly pray to them, but he would go to the cemetery and consult their, their gravestones. And I mean, he grew up, so my dad grew up in Seattle pre-World War II and Christianity had not yet reached the West coast of America. (laughs) Japantown was played a big role in his life because Ah. he went to Broadway high school and all of the kids from Japantown did. And we had a very active, uh, and, you know, culturally rich Japantown yeah. here before the war. What, hap- what happened during the war? What happened during the war that might have affected that Japantown? Well, let me tell you. Japantown kind of moved. That's a future omnibus episode. But my dad had had very traumatic experience at that when the Japanese were interred. Sure, they were his friends. A Is lot that- of them were his friends because he played basketball. And in his retelling of Seattle in the 30s, uh, the Japanese were the best basketball players just, in the city. Just like in our era. Just like in our Futurelings. era. Famously best basketball players. But he, he, at Broadway High School, he felt like the Japanese basketball players were the ones that were the most competitive. Them. And um, he had a lot of Japanese friends. At my school, by the way, the basketball team was entirely Korean. So right. like, I would totally understand your Because dad's, you lived in Korea, though. That, that did help. I mean, it's Korean-American kids. More, more Korean-American kids than white kids liked basketball. It's surprising how many tall Koreans there are. There are a lot of tall Koreans. I mean, and, especially today that we gave them fast food. Yeah, right. You're Increasingly welcome. a lot of ta- tall Chinese. We've decided to put a lot of weird hormones in their milk, and now we don't win the Olympics <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so he was very, my dad was very influenced by Japanese culture growing up. And so I don't know whether. It's it's commonplace in Japanese homes to to light candles and incense sticks. Right. Make offerings, just put some crackers or something in front of the picture of of great grandpa or whatever. It really resonated with him. He never directly tied it to his Japanese friends. Although during his memorial service, I had a a funeral for him at the Washington Athletic Club after he died. And as I'm standing there kind of presiding over this event, I see kind of one after another, these little old 89, 90-year-old Japanese men come filtering in to the ceremony. Were they all wearing basketball jerseys? They they weren't. And they were all five feet tall. I have no idea why they would have been the best basketball players, but they came out of nowhere. I'd never, I'd never met any of these guys, but they all kind of came up and like, your dad was the greatest archer. And I'm like, hey, he never <laughs> told me he was into archery. Uh, so anyway, he practiced ancestor worship, but I'm an animist somehow. I don't know where that came from. But you, if you apparently think this is one of your six other podcasts where you can just <laughs> tell un- unrelated life stories <laughs> until the other guy tells you to stop. And this is this is not that show, John. Oh, uh, all is, right. This is the one where we talk about World War II movies. I thought we, <laughs> thought we were talking about guitar picks, <laughs> and that concludes <laughs> guitar picks and Japanese basketball players. Unfortunately, you've picked a topic today that I have some personal stories about. So you go right on ahead with your blue men of the Sahara. I feel like you were already telling your your uh, your nomadic Berber stories. They just were very, very tangential but and had Joe Pernice in them a lot. They were encoded, yeah. <laughs> if you break a pair of my glasses, I will mourn them. I'll mourn the spirit of them. Mm. I don't. I know that's not part of your religion, but maybe at some primitive level. I also get attached to... Th- things. And I've, I've been trying to analyze it lately because I'm not a hoarder, but I, I had, I had, um, older relatives with hoarder tendencies growing mm-hmm. up. And so mm-hmm. I've kind of seen the, I mean, nobody with like 30 cats and the, and the state humane society barging in, but you know, people who kept my, my grandpa, I think, you know, kept every Seattle times <laughs> for the last eight <laughs> years of his life for some reason. Cause you might need that. I've seen your office and it's quite a temple to, I mean, it's got a lot of books. So that's what, so for me, it's often media. 
It's books and, it's books, and DVDs, it's art, comic it's books, but DVDs. You, you also have figurines. I mean, you're not. I'm not one of these guys with a ton of toys. I just want the future to know this. Yeah. But I when I do have, when I do get one of those from somewhere, I often stick it on a shelf. Maybe not literally a ton, but half, <laughs> a half ton of toys. Um, it's a metric ton for you guys, sure. You guys have more Legos in your basement than I've ever seen. Lego for sure. I mean, really having kids is just a chance to kind of exercise that kind of uh, second childhood part of yourself, that juvenile part of your brain. How much time at, when your kids were young, did you spend personally playing with Legos? Just take whatever amount of time they did and yeah. like triple it. <laughs> like this summer we were thinking of, we were in uh, London and we we're like, oh, it's so great here. You know, London in the summer is amazing. Pretty nice. What a great place this would be to live. It's just, it's a world cultural capital like New York, but without all the New Yorkiness, you know? It has all that london well, well, to, to supplant. It, it has this kind of fake, polite, twee British air, which is very impressive to Americans, instead of, you know, forget about it and, <laughs> and you know, just kind of a brusque New York thing. We should be living here a few months out of the year. And I was super excited about this plan. But then I realized, you know, all my books would be like an ocean away. Oh. You know, all my movies would be. And that was a very heavy psychic toll on me, the idea that I'd have all this great stuff. And it's dumb. I could go to a library and check out those books. I could stream those movies. I could buy new copies of any of it. When you sit in your office surrounded by your books, do you feel like it's, embraced? It's pretty womb-like. And you see, I have this big kind of Bob Cratchit desk. You do. It's like this old railroad desk. So I am kind of peering at people <laughs> over it. Like, yeah, you'd really do when you sit behind it. Like Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more piece of coal, please. Ken, will you get on this? I prefer not to. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. I'm a scrivener. Uh, and I kind of like the womb-like quality, yeah. but I'm I'm not a person who could take all my possessions and pack them up on the backs of two camels. And I assume you are not either. Well, I so I try and maintain two separate states. And one of them is this collector that has all of the little picks and belt buckles that he ever touched, like collected and sorted. But there's another part of me that feels like I should be able to live out of one small bag. And it actually became a... You're um, like Schrodinger's hoarder. <clears throat> yeah. Until you open the yurt, we don't know if it's crammed with guitar picks or if it's just uh, John and one bonsai tree. Sure, it could be John's Technicolor dream coat. Um, it, it actually became a trope on the first podcast I ever did that I kept a small bag packed. And it had, you know, there's that culture here of everyday carry. It's like a, a gun? No, it, well, it can be, but but there's a subculture of sort of the survivalists. Sure, it's called your your get out bag or what's your it bug called? out bag. Bug out bag. <laughs> but everyday carry is this culture of people ordering and sorting and finding the best, exactly best things that they can keep on their person: knives, a little fish hook with wire. Have their belt be a thing that is actually a a braided cord that they could use to span a river. You know, they they actually keep on their person the tools that they would need if something if something bad happened in this moment and you had to leave with nothing. And it's every day. It's just the pleasure of thinking of imaginary scenarios that are more, I assume, more interesting than anything you're actually doing. Right. right? Every day when you get on the, that's on the, the that's train the on, survivalism is on your way to work, right? You, you know that if everything goes crazy, you'll be able to catch a fish <laughs> and no one else will. That's one paperclip. I can bend it into a hook. I can, you know, there's so many things it can do. But if you Google EDC, you'll meet a lot of these uh, potential nomads. Mm. And I think of myself as one. If everything burned down, I've, I've already hardened my heart to the idea that I've lost everything. See, I, I, I kind of want to be at ground zero. I do not want to live in the rubble because I feel like 
I'd be, I'm very ill-equipped. You would like, lose all I, your Marvel I, comic. I am right. Like I have, <laughs> like I have every X-Men back to, <laughs> and what good is that going to be? That's not going to be currency. You know, John Hodgman, uh, he hoards inhalers. Because, Just in case. Yeah. Because he has asthma and the, and it's severe asthma, I think. And the idea of being without an inhaler causes him to have a lot of anxiety. And I, so he keeps them in in his bunker. I definitely have the world's largest X-Men collection of anyone who does not have asthma. Mm. But yeah, I just, I just feel like I would immediately be helpless. Like there would immediately be 60 things I did not have and would not know how to do. And I am just not cut out for the nomadic lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, and few people are, right? I mean, we think of it as an innovation of modern life that we have these closely built permanent communities. And that's what allows the building of any kind of infrastructure, any kind of technological development. If every day you're thinking, I got to get the goats to a place with a little more rain or a valley where they haven't eaten all the, the thorny whatever yet. Right. The sorghum. Eat all the, the millet. <laughs> no, wait, I'm going to eat the millet. Yeah. Save the that's, millet. That's the good stuff. <laughs> it is. Millet and camel milk tonight. <laughs> um, so there's not a lot of nomadic people left in the world. There's people like you and me with a ton of accumulated stuff. Right. But one of the few remaining nomadic peoples live in kind of the western part of the Sahara Desert. It's countries like Mali, Niger. Is that how we say it? We, we say Niger on the show. We do say Niger. And do they say that there? Yes. But are there Anglo people who will just say Niger? Like people who are pronouncing it wrong. Okay. Good to know. You can say Nigeria, which is a neighboring country. Sure. But Niger is how Niger is pronounced. Uh, the, the southern parts of Algeria. A lot of this is a, a belt called the Sahel, which is the, it, it, I think it means shore because they, th you know, they think of the Sahara as a vast sea, a vast sandy sea. And the Sahel is like the border between that dry, not arable area and the wetter savannas of and Africa to the south. The Sahel is very noticeable from the air if you fly over it. it In is, what way? It is a, a pastoral mm. country. Um, and the Sahara is truly, uh, from 30,000 feet, the Sahara is very visibly an uninhabitable wasteland of sand. But the Sahel is almost- And, and rock, by the way. The Sahara rock. is not as sandy as people think. You know, the world's largest sandy desert is actually in Arabia because so much of the Sahara is just, it's not vast dunes like you're picturing. No, but it is, you know, it it's, is it, like- It's desolate. There is nothing. Yeah. Um, whereas the Sahel is- just as large, or it appears just as, it's an enormous area in that kind of mid part, the sort of largest part uh, horizontally of Africa. And there, I mean, it kind of feels almost Edenic. It's dry country and really only suited to nomadic life because there's no one, you, you can congregate around a, an oasis, but you couldn't really like survive Where would as you a go? sedentary people. You just have to keep moving. Uh, and of course, that has not always been true. In our era, the Sahara is, you're, you're saying Sahara. Is it okay if I say Sahara? You may say Sahara. What, what does Sting say? <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the only question I, like if I'm in a situation where I don't know what to do, I have a little ring that's like WWSS. Like, <laughs> it looks like it comes from the Arabic Sarah, which means there is no second syllable. That's something we've added to make it, to, uh, you know, westernize it or anglicize it or romanize it. Well, so I mean, Sahara is probably as, just as close as, probably closer than Sahara. Do you say that you're going to visit Perry? <laughs> I hope yeah, you don't. I'm, I'm one of those people. <laughs> I call Florence Firenze. <laughs> uh, 
no, uh, I do not. I, but I, it sounds like people there would say neither Sahara nor Sahara. So neither of us is putting on airs or ours, as I would say. Uh, ours. I think in the whole of the Maghreb there, you have, you have a panoply of languages and there are a couple of lingua francas, including franc. <laughs> <laughs> Probably francais, not, not franc. That's, but, that would be the currency franca. But like as it, as it was colonialized by the French, yeah. they, in, they imposed French as the administrative and, yes. and but Arabic also was just an earlier version of that. Sure, because uh, this was not always Arabic territory. The Arabs, as you may know, used to be in Arabia. They did. And then, uh, you know, and they were, not, they were not a big empire. They were a bunch of desert tribes, and it was the Persians and the Byzantines that were kind of controlling that part of the world. But then something amazing happened. Islam. Here it came. Something to unite all these little wandering tribes and give them, uh, you know, a shared vision and a shared sense of community and a shared kind of passion and mission. And suddenly you have these series of caliphates. The, the Persians and the Byzantines have been fighting for so long. They're just, they've beat each other up. They're um, Rocky and Apollo mm. in round 11. And suddenly a third guy comes into the ring and it's the Iron Sheik. It's the, it's, it's the Arabian, it's the fake Arabic wrestler, the Iron Sheik. I'm so impressed he, that you, he, you went from a Rocky reference to a like eighties wrestling reference. To me, there's a lot of overlap because of Thunderlips, uh, right? Hulk, remember? So, sorry, I'm lost Hulk, Hulk, The wrestler Hulk Hogan plays a thinly fictionalized version of himself as a pro wrestler in Rocky three. But everyone in the future already knows this. <laughs> I did not. I guess I didn't see Rocky three. I had no idea. Even Mr. T, you know, Mr. T's a Rocky character who was showing up at WrestleManias or whatever. What's the plural of WrestleManias? WrestleMania. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout um why are we talking about this? oh right so the per the persians and the byzantines are on the ropes right and Suddenly, As so often happens, a colonial power will exhaust itself. And then suddenly there's a power vacuum and look who fills it. And the uh, Umayyad Caliphate, one of the first post-Muhammadan Muslim states, starts spreading westward to form what today we call the Maghreb, right. North Africa, which did not used to be an Arabic-speaking or, or a, a Muslim part of the world. It was populated by the Berbers, a, a light-skinned uh, people whose, whose alphabets may have derived from Phoenician the Berbers got their names, by the way, from the Egyptians and later the Greeks in a funny kind of prison colon ensign cusal way. <laughs> they were making fun of the way they talked. You know, they heard these people talk and they, you know, the same way you'd hear somebody say something dumb and you'd be like, der, 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 der. Berber, Berber, Berber. And they actually were like, oh, we're going to call you the Berbers because you guys are always like, Berber, Berber, Berber. 
And for the Greeks, it became their word barbarian. You know, today the word we use for a some kind of uncivilized outsider comes from the way the the North African people of the classical era used to talk. So when you read about, you know, the Greeks talking about the Libyans, or even in later days, the Moors, you know, th that's a word that came to mean Arabic people in Spain. But before that, those were terms that you're picturing the wrong thing. You're, it's actually the Berbers. St. Augustine was a Berber. So were Roman writers like Terence and Apuleius, who were from you know, Carthage and Numidia and all these Russian states or Russian Roman states in North Africa. <laughs> you have nothing to say about that. <laughs> I'm just enjoying you go. I mean, this is like an area of particular interest to me too. So like, but of course, if you're interested in it, I can see why you would have nothing to say. No, I mean, I've been, you would not want to jump in with any thoughts or, or contributions of your own. Enjoying you just, just dropping all this science. I mean, I, I you've yet to say anything that I disagree with or <laughs> really have anything to <laughs> add. I disagree with. Uh, I think you should have said, um, yeah, cause I was just about to be like, Oh, and Carthage. And you're like, <laughs> So you can talk about Carthage. I had I had Augustine all queued up, but so I'm stealing your material. No, not stealing it at all. You're doing such a spectacular job. What could I What could I add? Why this? From now on, this is just a solo show. <laughs> <laughs> Where I here's what happens. I'll be like John. You have a lot of guitar picks, and then I do you too. I'm like burr 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 burr. <laughs> it's interesting because we think of we think of North Africa. I think from our perspective as being not just a Muslim country, but also an Arabic, sure. the Maghreb being an primarily Arab area, uh, but it isn't. And it's so far. It's, 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 an, it's thousands the, of miles from where Arabs are actually from. Yeah, Arabia. it goes from the, it goes from the Pacific ocean all the, or I'm sorry, from the Atlantic ocean all the way to the Nile. Uh, but Did I think. Do you have some theory that they got to the Pacific? Uh, they got to the a Pacific. Few hardy, oh, you know a, few, what? <laughs> a few hardy Bedouins. <laughs> one, of, one of the great sailors of the of the era, one of the original explorers, was a Berber sailor. And of course- uh, Is that right? Yeah. Uh, of course- Is one it of Sinbad? The, it is not Sinbad. Is it Sinbad the comedian? It is neither Sinbad <laughs> the comedian nor Sinbad the, the explorer. But yeah, they were, uh, I, I, think the, I think you could argue that the population of North Africa is still, if not majority- Berber than majority, majority like with some Berber descent. Um, it isn't like Arab. Yeah. And the Umayyad Caliphate was huge. You know, it, it extended 5 million square miles. It was twice as big as Alexander the Great or uh, Rome at its height. And I think we don't realize that. We don't uh, realize it because it isn't even up in, I mean, geographically, the arid portion of <laughs> it, North Africa. You're saying we shouldn't count it? It wasn't very good. <laughs> no, it, by well, that by that measure, Alaska is smaller than Massachusetts. We so. should we should we can count it as a territory, but I mean when you think of Alexander the Great, he has a lot of wonderful cities there. Whereas, <laughs> you know, the the caliphate has an awful lot of empty rock. They just has to they have to take over like a few coastal ports on the yeah, Mediterranean right. and they can be like, hey, guess what? We've got everything to the Atlantic. Well, and that was a big part of the French colonial era, right? I mean, they took over Tunisia and Morocco, the the, the it, front end. It looks pretty good and, on a map. And then it goes all the way to Sudan. Well, all the modern empires that were bigger than the Umayyads, because there was nothing bigger than the Umayyad Caliphate until you know, China gets unified and then the French and British and, and Spanish and Portuguese. But if you look at all their areas, it really is, you know, br the British empire was the largest empire in the world, but it's because they had the Canadian tundra and the Australian outback. Right. And, you know, they weren't facing a whole all lot of, of uh, yeah. And there were lots of, in the Umayyad Caliphate, there were plenty of pockets of non-Muslim people. It was a majority non-Muslim place for 
centuries. And, you know, the smaller populations of Jews and Christians and pagans of all kinds, um, they were second-class citizens in that they could not hold political power and, you know, had some secondary socioeconomic status. They all had to pay special taxes because the Muslims could get away with paying their, their alms, you know, which is one of the five pillars of Islam. But everybody else had to pay some kind of substitute alms to, Al the, to the government. Although in contrast to Christian empires where you converted or— By, con the, by the sword. By the sword, um, that— Muslim empires were very permissive of other religions. You just had to pay tax. Yeah, you could. You still had your own little community. Um, they were called dhimmis, I mm -hmm. think. Uh, very different than what it usually looked like when a European power and wandered that into the warmer parts of the world. The tragedy of the Jews in Spain was as the Reconquista pushed the Arabs out, all of a sudden the Jews that had played a major role in Islamic Spain suddenly had to convert to Catholicism or were run out. It is like choosing between baseball and the Pope. If you're, Jew is. you're Jewish. Who do you want? Uh, the, the Caliph or the Pope? <laughs> it turns out the Caliph by a wide margin in that era. And um, Sephardic Jews, which make up a, now a portion of the Jews of, of Israel and the Eastern Mediterranean actually are all displaced Spanish Jews. Hmm. Am I telling you something that you already know? Yes. Damn it. Should I look more interested? Oh, <laughs> I don't know what the right... Uh, you didn't what, have anything to say. What's the right level of feigned interest? <laughs> no, In my digression? <laughs> um, so there are still descendants of the Berber people. Uh, they live abundantly in the Sahara. I mean, as abundantly as anyone lives on the vast wastelands of the Sahara. Speaking um, their own distinct language. Right. The Tuareg people. Uh, what, what's the time code, by the way? How far into the episode are we? Because I think I just said the subject for <laughs> the first time. You did, and it is 37 minutes into the show. So now, now people know how much they can skip. Yeah, that's right. Basically. The Tuareg. The Tuareg people are some of the last nomads on earth. They're the descendants of these Berbers. But they're not, um, they don't see themselves as forced into a harsh nomadic lifestyle. They're into it. They're named for themselves as the Imazgan, the free people. Mm-hmm. And they like wandering. One of their, uh, the proverbs that kind of sums up their whole ethos is uh, they say, houses are the graves for the living. Yeah. Graves for the living, Think right? Think about that, Mr. Every X-Man. Think about that. Le, Le Corbusier, <laughs> who said that a house is a machine for living in, not to the Tuareg, like no. their perfect house is a little 10 by 15 leather tent on the back of, a, on the back of two camels. Which must have been the inspiration for Volkswagen when they named their expensive little SUV the Tuareg. Their crossover luxury SUV. <laughs> they, they imagine a lot of people living in those. Yeah, it's like two camels. Because uh, 5,000 years ago, the Sahara was awesome. It was a great place to live. It was all like the Sahel. It was, a wetter place. It was a lusher, green, pastoral place. But that all changed when wind and weather currents changed. And I think there's some kind of feedback effect where once a place starts to desertify it's just going to keep going. And desertification is a real problem there now. More and more space in the Sahel is being lost to the desert all the time. Yeah, the Sahara or Sahara, as some people, as, as some, Sting would say. some more educated people would say, <laughs> it's still growing. It's 10% bigger than it was in 1920. Uh, so do you have a joke there? No, that's not good. I mean, the joke is boo. Yeah, 100 years, it grew 10%. Here's what we don't need, more Sahara. I don't know. No. I do not think we need more Sahara. You're not going to be a relativist about the value of the Sahara? I don't think there is very much value. I think there's plenty of Sahara. There's too much. Yes. How, how do they say it in the Matthew McConaughey movie, Sahara or Sahara? Boy, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Matthew McConaughey has never been my pronunciation guide. He's kind of my sting. 
Because <laughs> 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 Sting gets older. But Matthew McConaughey just keeps staying all the right, same all age. All right, all right. So the Berbers would, as the as the climate dried, the Berbers were forced to um, move to a lot, shift to a lifestyle where they would have to follow rain wherever it went, the vegetation in the valleys, different times of the year, you move to wherever there's reliable stuff to, to on which you can feed and water your goats and your sheep and your camels. They Up were, into the Atlas they were hurting people. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. They were also into the medieval period, they became merchants because suddenly there's viable trade across the Sahara. <laughs> right. Trade in salt, trade in in dates. That's the funny thing. It's often these kind of small luxury goods because that's what it's easy to pack on a camel. So they would not be carrying the staples of life. They would not be having hauling big bags of millet sure. across the Sahara. Grow your own millet the Sahara. was their mentality. <laughs> right. The Sahara? <laughs> Nobody says that. I'm going to just split the difference. Wasn't she a character on the original Star Trek? <laughs> Lieutenant Sahara. So it would be stuff like salt and yeah, ivory, spices. It's super light. It's a super high profit margin. Perfume. Right. So basically it becomes like Sky Mall. Frankincense, of the myrrh. Desert. It's all, yeah, it's a lot of myrrh. <laughs> <laughs> and in some cases, I guess the dark side, slaves. Right. Um, you know, we can all have a good laugh over frankincense and myrrh. But when there was a high profit margin on slaves, that, that started to be what got trafficked. Because, you know, again, sub-Saharan Africa, huge source for a lot of these resources, but a huge market for it up along the Mediterraneans. So they were just like the Phoenicians crisscrossing the Mediterranean, but they were doing it on camels across vast wasteland. And as a result, they became a camel riding people. To they, this. they initially started out on donkeys and, and they were goat riders. Yeah, they were, I mean, they were herders. Right. Of, and, and, you know, they were, they became camel wrestlers as well, because this is, this is how you build up a camel population. You know, you, you don't observe whatever the lies of these city folks. So there's a, you know, anciently there was a tradition of them borrowing camels and getting very good at releasing camels from their rightful owners. But yeah, to this day, the men will still ride camels. The women and children tend to prefer donkeys, but camels are very central to their culture. They have- And it's interesting because camels aren't native to North Africa. They're more of a horn of Africa and- They spread Arabic. west with the caliphate? Yeah, they came with the Arabs- Ah, so these people were herding goats and stuff, and all of a sudden there's this bigger, yeah. weirder, better animal. Like, this one is cool. And it's like, uh, it's you're asking about gas mileage on the lot. It's like, this one gets <laughs> like <laughs> 180 <laughs> miles to the gallon of water and millet. Right. Um, there are two kinds of camels, as you know. Bactrian? The Bactrian camel, which is from Central Asia. And then the, two humps. the sort of uh, dromedary camel, the, the, the one hump camel. And which, so you're, are these guys all on one humped camels? They're on one hump camels, yeah. They, uh, have you ever seen the, the, the kind of a, the saddle they use? It's like a little chair. Yeah. It's two pieces of carved wood. So you actually have a little back on your chair and a piece of soft calf leather holding them together. And so you just kind of sit up there like you're in your recliner, king of the world, and you, you're barefoot because you, you want to be in touch with the inner workings of the camel mind, sure. the camel soul. Sure. The camel is a thoughtful animal. You, uh, you know this for a fact? <clears throat> well, I've, so I've been to this area. I've spent not a small amount of time in, in North Africa down in the, I've seen wild camels. You were in Niger, I think you've said. And then I came from the South in Niger as well. So I've seen Oh, this, you've done, you've done two trips. So uh, uh, multiple trips. Uh, so in, in Morocco, I traveled down to what would you, I guess you'd call it the North edge of the Sahara to the cities of Warzazat and, 
and uh, and other little uh, little oases down it's, it's there. It's been a while since you've been in Morocco because you don't do drugs anymore. I don't do drugs anymore. And I got to Warzazat and realized that I had gone too far and there was no... I tried to get across the Sahara uh, when I was a young man and got down... Did you just assume you could do it? I did. I had never looked really at a map of <laughs> Africa and understood The it. one thing that everyone knows about the Sahara, small and easy to cross. It's really easy to cross. And I assumed... So I set off from Casablanca and I thought that a good adventure would be to get from Casablanca to Lake Victoria. Wait. And <laughs> that's the other side of Africa, the it, second biggest continent. It is, and I well, did what, what not... Are you, what are you in? Are you you're hitchhiking? I'm hitchhiking. You're in a VW Touareg? No, I'm hitchhiking. And I thought, what fun this will be. But I didn't understand the distances. I had no... I did not have a map of Africa even. See, they don't teach geography in schools anymore. They didn't. And everyone says, <laughs> oh, it's just state capitals. But it almost killed beloved indie rocker John Roderick. It did. I, so I hitchhiked quite successfully um, all the way down to what became... What, what are thought of, I guess, as the ports or the border towns on the north end of the Sahara past these points. There's nothing until literally... Timbuktu. I love that there's ports. Isn't that romantic? Yeah. Well, Vast it, dune sea. It was. And I stood on the edge of the road with my pack on my back and my thumb out watching these enormous trucks and their trucks built to cross the Sahara. Big tires. They're a separate breed of cross Saharan truck. Is it just because of the distances or does the road get sandy? The, it's, or? it's the road. The road turns into just a sand path. There it's is no not, road. There's no, I mean, there's a road, there's a path, there's but it's, no paved but road. you know, the desert is also nomadic. Um, anyway, I stood there on the side yeah, the of the desert's always, the desert's desert's always, always wandering moving. around. It's always chasing that goats. That happens in our house every time the kids come back from the beach too. Right. But I stood with my thumb out watching these trucks go by and the truckers, they all were laughing. Like, literally pointing at me and laughing. That's because thumbs up in Arab cultures it, means... It means, uh, it means I, you know, I am a my, rent boy. My mother is a... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I stood there, you know, for a couple of days, I would go back to the town and, you know, and kind of like find a, a place to crash and then go out the next morning until I, I, you know... Six months later. I was so discouraged by the fact that I was being laughed at by these truckers. I went back to... I found a bar in a hotel... And there were like truckers there. It was kind of a truck stop, but a Moroccan one. And I sat at the bar drinking tea and got into conversation with these guys. And I was like, I'm having a really hard time hitchhiking across the Sahara. And they, they all laughed. You could find English speakers? Uh, French. Ah, you had enough French to do this? A little bit, a little bit of French, enough, nice. to, enough to talk. And they were like, you're, you're an idiot. Like you can't just... None of these drivers all have just enough water and food and supplies to get themselves across this incredibly inhospitable and many day long trip. And they're not going to bring you. They're not looking you, for a college student. Yeah. You don't, you're not fun to them. You have no supplies. You look like trouble and they're laughing at you because this is the most idiotic thing they've ever seen. And so I had to turn around and head the other way. With Which your, is with your tail between your legs. I did, and it's very hard to hitchhike the other direction. <laughs> so, did you ever get to Lake Victoria? I never did. No, to this I ended day. up. I ended up. I went into Algeria for a day, but that was at a time when uh, a lot of French tourists were being murdered in Algeria. So there was. I was dissuaded from from going any further. And I was an idiot. Is that not coming across in this story? I was a completely ignorant 
ding-a-ling. And this was what, three years ago? You're in your late 40s. <laughs> I, was four, I was 48 years old. And I was like, this sounds like a good inventor. <laughs> no. I, was reading in, I was reading in Delta Magazine next to the Sky Mall. <laughs> no, this, this all began like when I was 20 years old. So I, I, that's I the, forgive that's, myself. That's the time for yeah. sure to almost die yeah. in the Sahara. That's when I wish I had di- almost died. But I went to Niger when I was in my 40s and saw Tuareg people. There are, there are more Tuareg in Niger than anywhere else. Yes. So it's a, it's a major component of the population there. And we should get to what's happened to them in, in modern times, which is interesting and a little sad. But first a little- But all their slaves were taken away? <laughs> yeah, no more. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with them losing their salt and spices, but come on, you got to have a slave or two. There are like 20 million people in Niger and 2 million of them are Tuareg. So 10% of the population. Yeah, there are there are millions of uh, Tuareg still. So it's, this is not some small vanishing tribe like in the Amazon or the people who eat Rockefellers the, the and Carnegies. Right. Or what, what were the names of the the New Guinean Valley people? I can't even remember. Oh, oh yeah, you know, I don't remember either. The ones, <laughs> <laughs> basically, the people who eat Michael Rockefeller. Yeah. That's that's how I think of them now. Um, you know, this is an abundant people, but you know the the territory is so vast that they're still little tiny clans crisscrossing. And to a degree, just to call them the Tuareg or even the Berber is kind of a, a later invention through European eyes. For many of these people, their unit is their little clan and it's less of a pan-cultural movement. But the Tuareg are very distinctive from other... Yes. And they do have a, a, you know, a beautiful complex culture that they mostly have in common. They, you mentioned their language, uh, Tifinog. It's a, it's Tifinog is their written language, which looks to this day very close to Phoenician, enough to wonder if maybe that's the origin of it. But what's interesting is they're primarily an oral society. Like most of the things we would use reading and writing for, laws and epic stories, uh, they do with oral storytelling and they reserve writing just for essentially goofing around, you know? Sure. Puzzles and riddles and graffiti. You know, they, they, they discovered writing and were like, nah. But I mean, we're not say- that into it. Like we'll do Sudoku, but <laughs> we're saying this on our podcast, See? which is, yeah, I think we're, we are now figuring that if we're not tweeting in 140 characters, uh, a complete like ephemera, we're spending most of our time, most of our intellectual energy in oral communication. Yeah. Public radio and podcasting is kind of making us all into the spiritual descendants of the Tuaregs. Yeah. And it's true. No, nobody on the internet can use the right it's or your, well, but maybe that's good. Maybe, maybe we're speaking to a future audience for whom everything is entirely oral storytelling based. And but, uh, but this you is the also, perfect medium. You also are a writer, but your books are... Not selling well. Well, and they, <laughs> no, are, they are also like largely ephemeral. I mean, your smart books aren't, but you know, your latest book about comedy is like la-di-da-di-da, doop-de-doo-de-doo. It's not like... So, not, so in this in this story, <laughs> the comedy book is not a smart book. No, it's a smart book. It's just a a fun book. I see. It's, right? It's light reading. Yeah. yeah. For the Tuareg, that would be a night around the campfire. Sure. I made the mistake of writing it down. And trying to sell it in airports. <laughs> I think I think our our society is still very text-based. I mean, this kind of offshoot, we, we think of the whole kind of podcasting, storytelling, the moth thing as kind of a, a fun throwback. Right. To an earlier phase of humanity because we, we'd essentially given it all up for centuries. Listen, this, this whole text-based argument, we're going to save for my uh, entry in the omnibus on post-structuralism. So just bounce off of the text. If you, if you think will. this one was too long, <laughs> make sure you skip the upcoming entry 
<laughs> on post-structuralism. Um, but they, uh, storytelling is not their only art. Uh, oh, speaking of their language, I was going to say this before. They have 50 words for camel. That's just how important camels are to their culture. That's one of my favorite Paul Simon songs. <laughs> it's got to be. <laughs> just get on the hump, rump. Uh, pull on the reins, Jane. There are, uh, you know, the, the words are based on you know, the, the color or the gait or the size, you know, different kinds of camels. Right. It, if, if your whole life is camel-based, it's kind of like we have all these words for, for cars, you know? Sure. A Tuareg is a, is a crossover, luxury crossover SUV, because we have dozens of words to mean automobile. But if you're living in a camel-based society, it's okay to body shame different camels. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are behavioral. Listen to this. The Arawaha is a camel that roars when loaded heavily. Oh. Is that good or bad? Pro I don't know. I feel like that describes me. <laughs> John the Arawaha Roderick. Uh, there's also Arananas. That's a camel that neighs with joy when fed. Oh, I want to meet an Aranana. I feel like I'm an Aranana. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I can, like, I just want baked goods, basically. Uh -huh. That's what people need to be sending me. It's kind of, so it's kind of like the old thing about the Eskimos having a bajillion words for snow. Right. The, the thing in your culture that's important to you shapes your vocabulary, maybe even grammar. I don't know. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. The society has uh, other beautiful arts. The men make this very intricate silver jewelry. W women tend to work more in leather and straw. Uh, there's also, the women are often in charge of the music. There's usually a drum circle which in our culture is primarily masculine, <laughs> <laughs> primarily midlife crises, uh, Robert Bly types. On that note, literally, uh -huh. uh, this is the third time I've used the word literally I wish in this I had show. A, I wish I had a bell. And I almost never do use the word literally because I'm almost never literal. But there, uh, to listeners of this program, uh, futurelings in particular who are able to find these videos, let me recommend uh, a musical group called Le Fil de Ilegahadad which uh, is uh, the women of Iligahadad, and they are uh, Tuareg women, uh, one in particular, who play the electric guitar and have, um, have developed this modernized version of their traditional music. And the, uh, the music is extremely captivating. She's um, the preeminent practitioner of this music and the, the star of uh, Le Fil, is a woman named Fatou Sidi Ghali, and her particular style of guitar playing and singing is, I mean, it's absolutely mesmerizing. I, I watch her videos all the time. So it's kind of like the, whatever the, the rudiments of 
North African music, but through electric yeah. instruments. She's the Ali Faka tour of, of yeah. the, and, and, uh, and like the, these guys in New York playing Balkan and gypsy music on punk instruments. Right. I mean, it's still, she still keeps the tone and, and timber of her music, but you know, the Tuareg are, I don't know if you've mentioned this yet, but they are a matrilineal society. So women play yes. a much larger role than in most Muslim countries. They are much more prominent in the arts and culture of the Tuareg. The men are still the chiefs, but uh, unlike most Muslim and Arab cultures, uh, they're matrilineal. When the chief dies, the, his inheritance passes to his sister's son. Like it goes through his female siblings to his nephew. And women can own their own herds of goats and sheep and whatnot. And that's kind of a form of financial insurance in the case of something. And it's men who wrong. wear the veil. That's the most interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, the reason why they're called blue men of the desert is because they wear uh, lots of robes stained very dark blue with indigo fabric, including on their faces. When a man turns, when a, when a Tuareg man turns 25, he wears the, he puts on a dark blue veil called a tijelmust or something similar to that, mm -hmm. which he wears his whole life. And I'm sure it started out as a way to keep sand out of your mouth, but it's turned into a very important ceremonial part of their, their culture and etiquette. Um, it would be disrespectful for anyone to see your mouth especially if it was someone of higher status. If you see the Le Fille de Ilgala Haddad, uh, I never am 100% sure how to pronounce it. If you say that. it differently every time, you're probably covered. Ilga Haddad. And Ilga Haddad to you as well, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Um, there is one guy in the group. It's mostly, it's mostly women, but there's one guy, and he is singing, but singing over the top of the veil, which he's kind of, which he's, he has on, but he pulls it, pulls it down under his mouth so he can sing the backup. Is it like super muffled? Is it like, <laughs> no, he, I mean the, the, he, he, he does have his mouth on the microphone, but he's, it's, he's very distinctively beheadressed. And the women do not veil themselves, um, no. which tends to go along with, and as we were saying, it's often the women playing the music. The men have a, the men will sing and play a little uh, wooden flute, but it's the women who play the drums and the imzad, which is a, a gourd horsehair, I know we love gourds on this show, a gourd horsehair violin that can really only play one chord. So it's perfect for, uh, you want to do Ramon songs or something? There's an instrument, which is a gourd in a bucket of water. <laughs> what and then what they, does that do? And then they hit the gourd with a mallet and the gourd kind of bounces up and down in this bucket of water and is like, boom, boom, Yeah, I need you boom. to do an impression with your mouth of what. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And, the, and, and I guess the rhythm of the, the tempo is and somewhat that, contributed to by the, by the way, the gourd, um, and that's like your rhythm section. Yeah. Like bounces in the, bounces in the bucket. I would like to replace my drummer with just a, a gourd bong, bouncing bong, in a bucket. Bong, 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 that bong. sounds great. It's very, very mesmerizing. You could put this music on and just float away. I have a feeling Corinthian's going to help us out and, and, and put some pouring music on here. And the veil is not the only way in which the Tuaregs are not super conventional, devout Muslims. Um, I guess just the fact of being thousands of miles from Mecca means the That's religion. That's quite a camel ride. Yeah, it's kind of, and, and it's a long, it's a long way for doctrines and dogmas to shift. 
they don't celebrate Ramadan. They're kind of Jack Muslims. Do you know the term Jack Mormon? I do. For uh, originally, I think a non-Mormon who was sympathetic to the Mormon pioneers, but later because of boxer Jack Dempsey, who was a non-observant Mormon, it came to mean any kind of uh, wishy-washy person of Mormon descent. So Jack Mormons are are wishy-washy. I thought it was also any heretical Mormon. Like if you weren't, if you didn't follow the latest uh, doctrine. I think it's usually just like culturally Mormon, but, or, you know, Mormon by ethnicity, but drinks coffee or, you know, something like that. But I'm sure it has wide usage. But but not one who maintains uh, I, I old like, tradition. I feel like I've seen it used for fundamentalists, Mormons, yeah. but not usually. Oh, okay. So it's more like uh, more like reform Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. So these these would be like Jack reformans, I guess. These these would be like the Jack Muslims. You know, they um they still have a lot of their pre-Islamic traditions and beliefs because you know just as as the further Christianity got from Rome or Palestine or Constantinople, you know, the more they were like, yeah, let's let the Druids keep their holly sure. wreaths. You know, let's let's still have the pine trees on Christmas and the mistletoe. Yeah, let's let the the Mars Hill people have their indie rock. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let them keep their grunge, but we'll modify it. Yeah. Um, we'll make it more about how we don't really like gays that much. Well, I would think the matrilineal aspect of it would not be in accordance with the with the the Koran. I think, yeah. Well, I don't know how many of these things are Quranic, and I would hesitate to say, you know, because a lot of things like the veil, you, you have Some more, cultural. more liberal Muslim scholars being like, you can't find that in the Koran, that's all culture. Right. Um, and it's not really my field. I'm a... I'm a white man here. I don't oh dear. don't want to step in. I don't oh dear. I don't know if mine is the voice that needs to be heard now. Um, but uh, you know, among, I like that you're saying that through gritted teeth, <laughs> that, apologetically my, gritted just, teeth. Just staying out of this Everything, voice. I don't know. Please, I don't know why I'm Johnny Carson when I'm. <laughs> if you're going to write us, just please write write Corinthian at <laughs> gmail.com. Corinthian's really a kind of our Quranic scholar yep. on the show. Yep. Yeah. He's a, he's a Hafiz. He's a memorized the entire text, mm. which is useful mm -hmm. to have on mm -hmm. the staff. Uh, the, um, so they, they keep a lot of their pre-Islamic traditions and they were also from, came out of this animist tradition like you of seeing, and I think we were talking about on the New Guinea uh, entry, seeing the natural world around them is imbued with spirit and life that is not visible to the naked eye. Right. Right. You break your glasses and you're sad. But for them, it might be a, a sandstorm or whatever. Specifically, they believed in Kel Esuf, the people of the void or people of the loneliness. Oh. Basically, if, you're, if your milieu is the empty desert, you know, you have no trees to project upon like a druid might. Right. You don't have jungle plants that um, get you high like an Amazonian native might or an Amazonian here in Seattle. Um, so do they see... Um, ghost people? Yeah, they they assume that the emptiness, the void, is actually full of a parallel set of people like them who cannot be seen because they like the most desert places, the caves, the mountains, the backsides of the dunes. It's like the string theory of the Maghreb. Yes. M multiple universes. That's right. Coexisting in, a, the, in the same space. There's a second parallel universe. The it, flying Dutchman of the desert. Right. And you could suddenly switch over and Spock would have a beard or whatever. Um, oh. In this parallel world, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because all cultures, their, their vision of the other world is very much limited by what their current world is. Right. You know, the Greeks will be like, oh, they've got temples with columns, but really nice ones. Right. And they're always like having sex with women, but they turn into ducks. You know, it's just like whatever they do. But sure, the Icelanders crazy. are like, they're gnomes. Gnomes yeah, exactly. who live in smaller homes. <laughs> 
So in these case, in this case, they think the parallel world is full of a nomadic people, much like themselves. But instead of herding camels and goats, they're these other people, the Kelasuf, are herding gazelles and jackals. Oh, things that gazelles pr- presumably no longer as big a right a factor in the area. As not they may. not super herdable, not super abundant. So this feels like a little bit of a holdover, sort of like the 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 flood or Noah's Ark, where it feels like it does reference actual events, but in pre-written time. Oh, you think it's like the Aboriginal dream time and they're remembering, they're remembering ancestral time when gazelles were... Right. Were, uh, Through an oral tradition, some things have passed down into mythology, which actually, which actually survive beyond, in the annals of time, beyond a time when, when things were written down. Yeah, and they believe, kind of like your dad, that these ancestral people or invisible people or whatever can affect their lives. And they're very wary of them. They, uh-huh. they, they will often carry amulets, which will be usually leather pieces, you know, pieces of leather with, you know, a, a protective word carved on them. So I guess they, you know, when they, when they go and get stuff, they do rely on written language and it'll say Bismillah or, or whatever. Oh, we will not let you go. Let him go. Yeah. It'll just, or Fandango, uh-huh. Scaramouche. It'll just be a word from Bohemian Rhapsody, sure. basically. And because some, sometimes the Kelasuf can be helpful, but it's very much like a Twin Peaks kind of cosmology where there's also like the black Kelasuf, the uh, dark yeah. place. And those guys will threaten you. And if they go into your mouth, they can make you ill or kill your herds or whatever. Another reason to wear the veil. <laughs> right. <laughs> you just got to keep the Kelasuf out of your mouth. Um, so even though this is, uh, you know, these people are nominally Muslim, they're, they're not maybe much as we would imagine that right. to be in, in daily, in when it comes down to daily life. Um, you know, just like most American Christians. <laughs> uh, what's sad is that in the late sixties, the Tuareg people became some of the first victims of climate change. You know, I mean, it's, it's always difficult to talk about microclimate stuff and say, is this really related to a global phenomenon? But as we've said, the Sahara has been, Sahara has been growing. Um, it's been changing its pronunciation every few minutes. <laughs> every few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and as a result, a lot of what used to be um, their open pasture land, or, or, you know, a lot of their herds have been lost to drought. And then just because of the growing population of the area, cities growing, um, their pasture land on the edges of the Sahara have been lost to farming. So they've got a 4,000-year-old technology, agriculture, finally starting to come back to bite them. Also, this area is, um, like in northern Niger, is um, one of the the great uh, uranium mining territories. Oh, interesting. And your, Gold cake, yellow cake. Yellow right? cake, right. And, and uranium mining. I vaguely mining. remember some Bush-era scandal. Yeah, right. Well, this is a tense topic because this is a largely sort of there are fundamentalist revolutionary Muslim elements in this northern part of Niger, and they are trying to gain control over this uranium mining. But uranium mining is extremely water intensive. Mm. So the uranium mines are depleting the water reservoirs and drying up oases. So that's also putting additional pressure on the Tuareg, who are trying to uh, gain control of uranium mining as sort of their birthright. Like this is our desert. This is our desert. Um, but of course, the uranium mine is controlled by French companies as a holdover of the French colonial era. So it's politically contentious there. This is, uh, you know, as a result, you know, these uh, the Tuareg people kind of losing the ability to to scratch out a living the way they have for centuries. They've started to kind of emigrate to what they call exod, like foreign lands, which generally means going to the outskirts of booming cities 
right. in the Sahel and, you know, becoming migrant labor or starting to do subsistence, uh, subsistence farming at oases, which they had never really dabbled in in the past. Uh, this is a people that politically has been, you know, much like we have repeatedly said about Mesopotamia, they've kind of been screwed over by arbitrary straight lines. Right. Um, they never got a homeland. They're divided between four or five different countries, you know, not just Niger, but Algeria Mali. and Mali and parts of Burkina Faso. So they really have no political power in any of these places. And that's fueled some kind of ethnic uprisings uh, over the past, throughout the 20th century of them saying, you know, we need representation. Why don't we have a homeland? Why don't we have any kind of autonomy? And it's tricky because there is no centralized Tuareg government. It's a bunch of... They're clans, like you said. Yeah. And as a result, that, that tends to result in regional militias with their own agendas. But it's important to note, I think, that Tuareg culture is extremely hierarchical. So it's not just a Tuareg people, but there's a there's a royal class or a noble class of Tuaregs who, who don't consider themselves to do lesser work like herding. They're a noble... Um, warrior class. And then there's a, they've got, they've got the camels with samurai armor. And right. Stuff. Right. And they are the, they're the ones that traditionally were allowed to carry weapons. And then there's the, then there's a kind of herder farmer class. And then there is a, there are artisanal classes and then an enormous slave class. And that class of people, I mean, they were slave raiders and slave traders. And there are still hundreds of thousands of people in slavery in Niger, some of them and a lot, a lot of them still held by Tuareg. Tuaregs are still implicated in. Well, still like the French eliminated the slave trade, but they did not free the enslaved. Did they forget? Well, they just figured like, you know, what we're trying to do is, you we're, know, eliminate we're, we're grandfather. Some of you guys. in. Yeah. But this whole, because it's a caste system like, like exists in India. If you are born a slave, you live as a slave. Freedom is, is not really even a, a, a fully fledged notion. So there are still a lot of people born into and living their lives in slavery in, in this whole equation. To this day, uh, you know, especially in Mali, it's a, it's a pretty live question how much power, you know, not unlike the Kurds, you know, how much power do the Tuaregs get? How much autonomy do they have? Uh, interestingly, in Libya, Gaddafi admired the Tuaregs, or, or at least kind of cozied up to them and, you know, tried to earn their loyalty for political reasons. Didn't he wear a Tuareg headdress as part of his Yeah, he, yeah, costume? he had that whole, uh, he, had, he didn't, you know, he didn't have the dyed blue cloth turning his skin blue. I he, guess it was a Berber He headdress. wasn't, he wasn't, yeah, but he did kind of point out that he was the descendant of these nomadic peoples and had kept their spirit alive. And as a result, the Tuareg loved Gaddafi and they were super, oh. they were super loyal to him when the Libyan civil war started because there are Tuareg in Southern Libya. And when Gaddafi fell in uh, 2011, his son, Saeed Gaddafi, was actually sheltered by the Tuareg, and they were able to keep him from justice for many months because uh, really? he, was, he was, you know, in a secret undisclosed location in southern Libya being, no pro kidding. being protected by, I had no idea. by Tuareg he was militias. was in a spider hole in southern Libya. Drinking uh, camel milk and playing a, uh, playing a gourd violin, boom, I guess. Boom, boom, boom. And that concludes The Blue Men of the Sahara. Sahara. Either way. You, it's Sahara if you're having tea there, but the rest of the time it's Sahara. That concludes The Blue Men of the Sahara. 
Entry 136.PS10704. Certificate number 42973 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, almost certainly it will be communicated through a gourd in a bucket rather than on this awful, awful, awful temporary and ephemeral internet. It will be an oral tradition for sure. Let's hope. A musical tradition where you wave your your sort of uh, cloud tentacles and it creates a disturbance in your like sulfuric atmosphere. Maybe they're underwater. You know how you know how uh, sound waves travel really far underwater. Like you put your head under in the bathtub, and you can hear the neighbors upstairs. Yeah, right. Or the or the whale sound that travels across the oceans. I guess that's a more poetic example than me hearing my neighbor's music. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they, you could hear from a you know future resident of Earth, some uh, super intelligent grouper. Hundreds of miles away. Right. Well, since time is a flat circle. (laughs) As we we all know. (laughs) Maybe the sounds that we're making are traveling across time. It would be nice to think that Right. The wavelength is going down into the depressed uh, gravity well and coming out somewhere else. I mean, the waves are heading outward away from our larynxes constantly. They're moving outward. We just need some way to capture that. Yeah. If we could reverse engineer sound, you know, we could pick up dialogue. You could eavesdrop on people 1,500 years ago. Right. The, you, uh, the you jackal ca- herders. Yeah. You could find out if people really were herding gazelle in the Sahel. Mm-hmm. You could hear like Catherine the Great, you know, romancing some poor count. <laughs> if you're into that kind of thing. That's the Ooh. first thing I thought of. Ooh, super hot. <laughs> I, hope, I hope they invent this so I can hear Catherine the Great getting it on. Anyway, uh, you can go to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, which is called the Futurelings on the Facebook, uh, Facebook app, Facebook, um, (laughs) environment. You're really really pushing that app. Make sure you download the Facebook app, everyone. Facebook, uh, uh, world. Also, uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Omnibus Project, and you can read Ken's hilarious tweets that he never deletes, even when he says something controversial. He always leaves it up there because he believes in the truth of the past. I believe in, you know, I'm a kind of old style Protestant and I want to be pilloried right. for my sins right. publicly, like in a flogged in some kind of a, in a, some kind of a stocks flogged for your bad tweets. I see Twitter not as a global village, but as just kind of stocks where I can put my head and yeah, hands. You wear the scarlet letter. Yeah. That's my hair shirt. Uh, you can also see my tweets, which are not as good at John Roderick. <laughs> Most of those are just links to my Instagram feed, good, which is wonderful. Good Instagram feed, though. Thank you. High quality Insta content. You were at the county fair recently. I was. I saw kids riding sheep, which would be That's a thing. That's very It's very Tuareg. Uh, and saw lots of, oh, lots of jars full of beans and took my daughter on her first big roller coaster. Jars full of beans? Beans? You're making a county fair sound even more boring than I'm <laughs> You know, my mom won a blue ribbon at the Ohio State Fair for her 4-H display of all the fresh vegetables and beans and pumpkins and... Pumpkins. Pumpkins, yeah. She I, does not put the second P in pumpkin. I'm thinking of entering a, a tumor in the county oh, fair. Oh, the largest year. tumor? Yeah. Like, who can grow the largest tumor? Interesting. You bring it in, everyone wants to know what your secret is. <laughs> <laughs> the, four, uh, the fourth H is for... Helioblastoma or something. Yeah, right. Uh, hematoma. There you go. Uh, you can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Please do. 
And uh, you can mail Ken some delicious pastries at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. We didn't get any baked goods this week, but you did get a couple paper bo- paperbacks about... Oh. Well, I can just ch- I can change the course of the podcast right now. Sure. They're about Nazis. Oh, you yeah. got books about Nazi tanks. I did. People sent me books about Nazis. Thank goodness we mentioned Nazis in this We episode. almost got through without missing Nazis, and then somebody was like, John might forget to mention the Nazis if I don't send him this book about Panzer tanks. The universe aligned. It's amazing. It should be noted that on our Futurelings page uh, on Facebook, on the Facebook app, uh, they play a game called Omnibus Bingo, where they wait for us to make certain references and then they are filling out their bingo cards and uh, Nazi reference is one of those. Confusingly, instead of bingo, it's like Ken Jr. Ken Jr. is the name of the game. Which I thought was a reference to my dad, but apparently I think, on second thought, I believe it's Ken and John Roderick. Isn't it? I get 60% of the acronym and you only get 40. that's true of our fans too. 60% of them are fans of yours. (laughs) Uh, But uh, you deliver the 40, John. You know, your your grandfather was named Ken Jennings. Correct. But he has passed away? Yes, he is no longer with us. At which point, I think, you become Ken Jr. Everybody bumps up one? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that you, I don't think that you are Ken 3 after, unless you're royal. I think normal. Or the Pope. Right. John the 23rd was not, there were not 22 other Pope Johns alive at the time. But my sense is that the etiquette of it or the, the convention of it is that when when the earlier Ken dies, you then do, you do bump up. I don't think that's because true it's, at all. Because it's only, only noble families that maintain these like, because you could be Ken the 14th and that just wouldn't read very well like on your business card. But consider this, it would mean your name is actually changing during your life based on the vagaries of, uh, you know, who gets eaten in New Guinea. I believe that's always true. I mean, my, uh, I've had my name legally changed to purple people eater and, uh, how's that going? <laughs> it's going great. People, Come to my website. Do people call you purple people eater? A yeah. Lot? I mean, I have two eyes, so I'm, so I'm distinguished from the one eyed long haired flying purple people. eater. Sure. You're, you're better than him because you have binocular vision. Yeah. The one eyed purple people eater can't see. He can't go to avatar 3d. Proceed small. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Soon, everything may look like the vast sandy wasteland where a young John Roderick once tried to flag down odd-looking trucks with his <laughs> with his poor French and even poor grasp of African geography. Uh, we hope and pray that this catastrophe holds off. I have children, for one thing. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like every recording may be our final word to you. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>